Section 19 of the History of Lady Julia Mandeville. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Lady Julia Mandeville by Francis Brooke. Section 19. Epistle Miss. To Miss Howard. Belmont, Tuesday. Oh, Emily, how inconsistent is a heart in love! I entreated Mr. Mandeville not to write to me, and am chagrined at his too exact obedience. I think if he loved as I do, he could not so easily obey me. He writes to Lady Anne, and though by my desire I am ashamed of my weakness, but I wish he wrote less often. There is an air of gaiety in his letters which offends me. He talks of balls, of parties with ladies. Perhaps I am unjust, but the delicacy of my love is wounded by his knowing a moment's pleasure in my absence. To me all places are equal where he is not, all amusements without him are dull and tasteless. Have not I an equal right to expect, Emily? He knows not how I love him. Convinced that this mutual passion is the designation of heaven to restore him to that affluence he lost by the partiality of an ancestor and the generous loyalty of his family, I give way to it without reserve. I regard my love as a virtue. I am proud of having distinguished his merit without those trappings of wealth which alone can attract common eyes. His idea is forever before me. I think with transport of those enchanting moments. Emily, that week of tender confidence is all my life. The rest is not worth numbering in my existence. My father to-night gives a ball to Lord Melvin, with whom I am again unwillingly obliged to dance. I wish not to dance at all, to make this sacrifice to the most beloved of men. Why have I not courage to avow my sentiments, to declare he alone? This Lord Melvin, too, I know not why, but I never see him without horror. Oh, Emily, how do all men sink in the comparison? He seems of a superior rank of beings. Your Julia will never give her hand to another. She swears this to the dear bosom of friendship. This detested Lord Melvin is at the door. He will not let me proceed. He tells me it is to a lover I am writing. He says this in a manner, and with a tone of voice. He looks at me with an earnestness. Lady Anne has alarmed me. Should my father intend? Yet why should I fear the most cruel of all acts of tyranny from the most tender and indulgent of parents? I feel a dejection of spirits on this subject which does injury to my father's goodness. Perhaps it is no more than the natural effects of absence on a tender and inexperienced heart. Adieu. I am forced to finish my letter. All good angels guard and preserve my Emily. Yours, Julia Mandeville. Epistle the Earl To the Earl of Belmont with all my affection for Lord T., I am hourly shocked by that most unworthy of all faults, his haughtiness to inferior fortune, however distinguished by virtue, talents, or even the more shining advantage of birth. Dress, equipage, and the overbearing assurance which wealth inspires strike him so forcibly that there is no room in his soul for that esteem which is a debt to modest merit. We had yesterday to dine Mr. Herbert, one of the most amiable men I ever saw. His person was genteel, his countenance at once expressive of genius and worth, which were rendered more touching to me by that pensive look and irresolute air which are the constant attendants on an adverse fortune. 
Lord T. returned his bow almost without looking at him, and continued talking familiarly to a wretch with whom no gentleman would converse, were he not master of six thousand a year. The whole company, instructed in his situation by the supercilious air of the master of the house, treated him with the same neglect, which I endeavoured to console him for, by every little civility in my power, and by confining my attention entirely to him. When we parted, he asked me to his house with a look full of sensibility, an invitation I shall take the first opportunity of accepting. When the company were gone, I asked Lord T. the character of this stranger. "'Why, really,' says he, "'I believe he is in himself the most estimable man in my neighbourhood, of a good family, too, but one must measure one's reception of people by the countenance the world shows them, and he's too poor to be greatly caressed there.' "'Besides, I'm not fond of being acquainted with unhappy people. "'They are very apt to ask favours.' "'Is it possible?' said I. "'My lord,' interrupting him hastily, "'you can avow sentiments like these. "'Why are you raised by providence above others? "'Why entrusted with that wealth and consequence "'which might make you a guardian angel to the unhappy? "'Where is my chaise? "'I will return to Belmont, "'where affliction ever finds a ready audience, "'where adversity is sure of being heard, "'though pomp and equipage wait.' Lord T. smiled at my earnestness, and praised the generosity of my sentiments, which, he assured me, were his at my age. He owned he had been to blame. "'But in the world,' said he, "'Harry, we are carried away by the torrent, and act wrong every moment mechanically, merely by seeing others do the same. However, I stand corrected, and you shall have no future reason to complain of me.' He spoke this with an air of good humour which reconciled us, and has promised to accompany me in my visit to Mr. Herbert, which I have insisted shall be the first we pay, and that he shall beg his pardon for the behaviour of yesterday. Is it not strange, my lord, that men whose hearts are not bad can avoid those whose characters do honour to their species, only because fortune denies them those outward distinctions which wealth can give to the lowest and most despicable of mankind? Surely of all human vices pride is the most detestable. I am, etc., H. Mandeville. Epistle Henry. To Henry Mandeville, Esquire. Can I play with the anxiety of a tender heart? Certainly, or I should not be what I am, a coquette of the first order. Setting aside the pleasure of the thing, and I know few pleasanter amusements, policy dictates this conduct, for there is no possibility of keeping any of you without throwing the charms of dear variety into one's treatment of you, Nothing cloys like continual sweets, a little acid, is absolutely necessary. I am just come from giving Lady Julia some excellent advice on the subject of her passion for you. Really, my dear, said I, you are extremely absurd to blush and look foolish about loving so pretty a fellow as Harry Mandeville, handsome, well-made, lively, elegant, and in the true classical style and approved by the connoisseurs, by Madame la Comtesse de Blanc herself, whom I look upon to be the greatest judge of male merit on the face of the globe. It is not for loving him I am angry with you, but for entertaining so ridiculous a thought as that of marrying him. You have only one rational step to take. Marry Lord Melvin, who has title and fortune, requisites not to be dispensed with in a husband, and take Harry Mandeville for your Chichespio. The dear creature was immensely displeased, as you, who know the romantic turn of her imagination, will easily conceive. Oh, I had almost forgot. Yes, indeed, you have great right to give yourself jealous airs. We have not heard of your coquetry with Miss Truman. 
My correspondent tells me there is no doubt of its being a real passion on both sides, and that the Truman family have been making private inquiries into your fortune. I showed Lady Julia the letter, and you cannot conceive how prettily she blushed. But to be grave, I'm afraid you have nothing to fear from Lord Melvin. You must forgive my making use of this expression, for as I see no possibility of surmounting the obstacles which oppose your union with Lady Julia, I am too much a friend to both not to wish earnestly to break a connection which has not a shadow of hope to support it. But a truce to this subject, which is not a pleasant one for either of us. I told you in my last I had something to say to you. As I am your confidant, you must consent to be mine, having a little present occasion of your services. You are to know, my dear Harry, that with all my coquetry I am as much in love as yourself, and with almost as little prospect of success. This odious money is absolutely the bane of us two lovers, and always contrives to stand in our way. My dear spouse, then, who in the whole course of our acquaintance did but one obliging thing, being kindly determined I should neither be happy with him nor without him, obligingly, though nobody knows this but myself and the Caro Belleville, made my jointure what it is, on condition I never married again, on observance of which condition it was to be in my power to give the estate to whoever I pleased at my death, but on a proof of my supposed future marriage it was to go immediately to a niece of his, who at his death was in a convent in France, who is ignorant of this condition, and whose whole present fortune scarce amounts to fifteen hundred pounds. She is both in person and mind one of the most lovely of women, and has an affection for me which inclines me to think she would come into measures for my sake, which I shall make it her interest to acquiesce in for her own. Belleville's fortune is extremely moderate, and if I marry him at present I shall not add a shilling to it. His income will remain in statu quo, with the encumbrance of an indigent woman of quality, whose affairs are a little derangé, and amongst whose virtues economy was never one of the most observable. He would, with transport, marry me to-morrow, even on these hard conditions. But how little should I deserve so generous a passion, if I suffered it to seduce him to his ruin? I have wrote to my niece to come to England, when I shall tell her my passion for Belleville, and propose to her a private agreement to divide the fortune— which will be forfeited to her on my marriage, and which it is in my power, by living single, to deprive her of for ever. Incapable, however, of injustice, I have at all events made a will, dividing it equally between her and Belleville if I die unmarried. I have a right to do this for the man I love, as my father left thirty thousand pounds to Mr. Wilmot, which in equity ought to be regarded as mine, and which is all I desire on the division.' She, therefore, by my will, has all she ever can expect, even from the strictest justice, and she can never, I think, hesitate between waiting until my death and at my mercy, and receiving at the present the utmost she could then hope for. I have heard from the lady to whom I enclosed my letter, which she has returned, my niece having left France a year ago to accompany a relation into Italy. What I therefore have to ask of you is to endeavour to find her out by your Italian friends— as I will by mine at the same time, that I may write to her to return immediately to England, as I will not run the hazard of mentioning the subject in a letter. She is the daughter of the late Colonel Hastings, once abroad in a public character, and is well known in Italy. 
Belleville is not at all in the secret of my scheme, nor did I ever tell him I would marry him, though I sometimes give him reason to hope. I am too good a politician in love matters ever to put a man out of doubt until half an hour before the ceremony. The moment a woman is weak enough to promise, she sets the heart of her lover at rest. The chase, and of consequence the pleasure, is at an end, and he has nothing to do but seek a new object and begin the pursuit over again. I tell you, but I tell it in confidence, that if I find Belle Hastings, if she comes into my scheme, and my mind does not change, I may perhaps do Belleville the honour. And yet, when I reflect on the matter, on the condition of the obligation, so long as ye both shall live—yes, you Maria, only think of promising to be of the same mind as long as one lives. My dear Harry, people may talk as they will, but the thing is utterly impossible. Adieu, mon cher ami, A. Wilmot. End of section 19